Okay. Um, let's pray, and we'll uh, get to work here. Father, thank you for what we've just heard and considered. Um, we give you praise for the way that you have put this mission on Dwayne and Kimberly's heart and that their children are excited about this and anticipating this. We pray for your rich blessing upon them and ask that this would be just amazing, that you would be preparing some just absolutely phenomenal work for them in the, um, in the months to come. We are so grateful for this. So, Father, help us as we look now at your word and pray that this would be helpful to us and encouraging and challenging for us as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are wrapping up our this, this evening. We're going to finish up uh, this little series that we've been doing uh, called Bedrock, the Foundations of Heritage Baptist Church. And as we've said all along, the purpose of this is really to, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're building a foundation for our um, vision as a church for the next for, forever, really. I mean, we're just building a foundation and, and the foundation here is our identity and our identity is rooted clearly. It has to be better be rooted in God's word. Who has, what has God called us to be as a church? I mean, and I've been saying all along, ever since this series got started that, um, you know, really what we're talking about in terms of identity markers could, is true of any church in the world. So that this is transcultural stuff. Gospel-centered is transcultural. I mean, what culture in the world is gospel-centered not important, right? We, uh, the church is, is, is a family. That's true in any culture in the world is a family. The church, people in the church are servants. People in the church are disciples. People in the church are missionaries. So this is true irrespective of what country or culture you come from. So this is, this is crucial stuff. This is foundational things for us tonight. And I'm just going to fly through some things tonight because I have a heart to kind of pull, I want to pull all this together where we've been the last eight weeks as we wrap up this series. And what I want to do is kind of summarize where we've been uh, just for a couple of minutes here. And then I'm going to close out by, by looking at a text of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and showing you really where this stuff is just so firmly rooted in God's word. So that's what we're going to do. Um, our job as pastors, among other things, is to constantly remind you of who we are and what God has called us to be. And, and this is critical because we need to constantly speak this over and over and over again. And as we said, identity precedes mission. Before a church can rightly understand its mission, it has to come to terms with its identity. What we do flows from who we are. The identity of the church shapes the mission of the church. And that's why our mission statement starts this way. We exist to be. That's a, to, to be statement is an identity statement. We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. That's all identity, okay? So our mission statement really has two parts, identity and then the actual mission component, okay? And then it moves on to the mission is to make, mature, and multiply disciples. So identity precedes mission, and that's what this series has been all about. We've been unpacking over, the, over these nine weeks together our essential and biblical identity as a church. And, uh, and like I said, this is what churches everywhere are called to be and to do. So tonight, what I want to do is give you a summary of, of where we've been and then look at 2 Corinthians 5. Um, so first, where, are we, where have we been? Look at, uh, I'm going to put something on the screen um, so that you guys can see this. Um, 
and uh, if you look at the screen, what you'll see is what you th- what the pastors consider to be our most essential identity as a church. We have said it this way, as I referenced a minute ago, we exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. I mean, that's, that's how we've summarized it. That's our core and essential identity. We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. Now, in that diagram that you see there, what you have are several words that are just absolutely paramount. So you have you have gospel. The gospel is spoken to us. And what does the gospel do? The gospel gives us our fundamental identity. I mean, you are who you are this evening because of what Jesus has done in your life. Christ is everything to you. Your position in Christ is, is what makes all the difference between you and some guy or girl on the street. So, so the gospel shapes your identity. And out of that, it makes you a worshiper. That's what you are. You're a worshiper of Yahweh, of God. And then that, these worshipers, individual worshipers, are brought together in a community. So we're a family of worshipers that come together, but we're a family that's on mission. So I really like that illustration. I think that works really well. And it's clear, and, it's, and it starts with the gospel. So we're a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. The other diagram that I have showed you before is... It's really the same kind of concept here, which is you have the gospel uh, comes to hundreds or thousands of people. And you have these little figurines that you see. And then these people are brought together into a community. What I like is the big circle there is the church. That's the gathered church. But what you see in the little circles is really what we would call like missional community groups. Groups that fan off from the church that are integrally part of the church, but are, are, are coming together to advance the gospel in the communities that they're from or that they're seeking to minister to. So gospel, community, and mission. You have, is the, you have the, this church influencing their neighborhoods, the little houses, and eventually the whole city. So you, this is a, and then eventually the whole world, as we just heard this evening. So this, this goes all the way to Serbia. It goes all the way to India. It goes all the way to Africa. So the gospel comes first. And we are to be busy as a family reaching God's world on mission. So we're a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. And so another way we've said this is think of it in terms of God, brother, and neighbor, which I think is another helpful way to kind of look at this, is that we love God because of the gospel, right? I mean, that's why you love the Lord. Secondly, you love brother on the basis of the gospel. What gives you the ability to, uh, to... There's people in here, there's people in the church that you don't necessarily like, meaning you wouldn't spend time with them. Your personalities clash. You're not close with them, but you love them, right? You may not be best friends. You may not even be close. There may even be some awkwardness in personality between you and them. It just just feels weird. You're not, you don't sync up real well, but you love them because the gospel is bigger than your personality differences, so that's the point. You, we love God because of the gospel. We love our brothers on the base of the gospel. And we love our neighbor. How do we do that? By spreading the gospel. So God, brother, and neighbor. I mean, another way we've said it, 
just different. These are just different approaches of all getting at the same thing is that we are tri-directional as a church. We're upward in our pursuit of God. We're inward in our pursuit of one another and we're outward in our pursuit of the world. And what we did over these nine weeks was essentially break that down into five identity markers. I don't know if you remember those, but if you don't, this would be a great thing to memorize. If someone asked you, what is our, what's your identity as a church? You go to Heritage Baptist Church. What, I mean, what, what do you guys do? What do you exist for? I hope that soon, maybe not now, but soon you'll be able to rattle off these things. What are we? We are a church. First of all, we are gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus. But secondly, if you want to just break that down into sort of identity markers, then it's quite easy to say we're disciples, we're worshipers, we're family, we're servants, and we're missionaries. That's who we are. That's who God has called us to be. We're disciples, worshipers, family, servants, and missionaries. And that's our most basic identity. And that's why each week we seek as a church to engage these areas in our activities as a church. So gospel worship, we come here on Sunday morning, we gather and we worship God. Gospel community, we, we are moving to a Wednesday night family sort of focus so that we can be a family together and, and emphasize that community. And then gospel mission, we are seeking to reach our neighbors strategically with the gospel on mission. And we think our missional community groups are a way that we're going to get that accomplished primarily. Why, why do we say that? Just let me just put a parenthesis in here. Um, cause you might be operating with a paradigm that says, Hey, I think sort of the plan for evangelism is invite people to church. And I would say, certainly that's a, that's an okay plan. That's certainly part of God's plan and his mission. Um, in that sense, it's a great plan in, in, in that God often uses his church that way, but you need to understand something. There's something naive about that assumption. And that is we don't live that worked 40 or 50 years ago in a far more strategic way than that works now. You say, well, I thought the Bible always worked in every culture and any tradition. Yes, but what happens is we have to be thoughtful about the culture we live in. We, we don't live in a culture anymore where you can just expect people to kind of come to church. I mean, we are just a few years behind England and Europe, and that place is dead. I mean, ask Dwayne, you got, are the people just sort of walking into church in Serbia just for fun, just because they want to check it out? I mean, it just doesn't happen. We live in the Bible Belt of America, and it's dying here. So if our plan for evangelism is just hope people walk into church and get saved, this church will never grow by conversion. Which means we have a responsibility then to go out and communicate the gospel. And if we don't do that, guess what, friends? We will not advance the gospel here. It just won't happen. We will sit here in 10 years and, 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 and we won't really see any significant growth in terms of conversion. So we have to pursue this. That's why I just, just trying to give you that category. If you're not thinking that way, it's important. We have to, we can't, we can't operate on a come and see mentality. We have to operate on a go and tell. And that's really important for us. So, so that's the, that's the big picture. Okay. Now what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I'm just going to drill down in second Corinthians chapter five and show you from this one text where these just awesome words are, are found in our mission statement, gospel, worship, community, mission, because in second Corinthians five is really all there. And it's just amazing passage. This passage 
in some senses really preaches itself. Now, I don't think I'm going to say anything to you in this little block of time together that's going to make you be like, oh, wow, I don't think I've ever thought of that before. But um, so I don't think that's going to happen. But but what I want to do is by way of reminder, I want to stir up your heart. As we close this series, I want to stir up your heart and soul to remember what God is up to in this great mission that he's called us to. I want to excite you. I want you to, to, to in your seat there, be thinking, wow, God has really called us to something grand and marvelous. This is amazing stuff. Like, we're not just people that come to church and sit and listen to good sermons, but God has called my life to something more. I can advance strategically the gospel among the people that God has put in my sphere of influence. And, and I'm a part of this kingdom expanding mission of God. And so I want to stir your heart up in this way. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's pick it up right away with verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I mean, this is on your coffee cup at home. I mean, some of you may be wearing a t-shirt with it right now. You know this verse. We know this so well. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, let's stop there. Um, Because if we can't get that right, in Christo is one of Paul's favorite phrases in the New Testament. In Christ, a massive Phrase So important. If we can't get this right, we won't get anything else right because our justification or our being made righteous in Christ is literally bound up in another man. Bound up in the God man. It it is by no act of our own that we are counted righteous in Christ. And if we don't consistently remind ourselves of that, if we don't grasp that, if the celebration of righteousness is not the celebration of his righteousness, then we are in trouble. At the very outset, because otherwise what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to earn what only can be given to us and trying to earn what is given to you is a death trap. And that's a scheme of the devil that he would love to use in your life. I mean, even as a Christian, you wake up and and you have this impulse to earn favor with God, to earn it. And so you work and you work and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of effort and holiness in pursuit of that. So don't hear me saying, don't sweat and pour over effort in your desire to, to, to grow in godliness. But what I'm trying to say is that your righteousness, your legal standing before God is accomplished, has been accomplished through Jesus. Now look where he goes next. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Such spectacular language. I mean, how did such a thing occur? The the Puritans, I love this, used the word vivification. Anybody heard that word lately? Vivification. It's a great word. And vivification just simply means to give or bring life to something, to animate, to make more lively, to intensify, to enliven. And, and that's, that's the word that the Puritans used. And this happens because we get caught up in this grand righteousness of Jesus. And that transforms the very essence of how we live our life. So we move from justification to sanctification. As we get sort of swept up into Christ in union with Jesus, as, as we get saved or regenerated, something happens to us is that new life comes. In fact, a new creation comes and we become entirely new people. We function with a new ethos, with new desires, with a new impulse, with new heart. And all things, as Paul says here, become new. I mean, vivification, you are made alive. 
and you're brought to new life spiritually. It transforms the essence of who we are. So the gospel is, I mean, crystal clear in this passage. I mean, if you go on, you look at, you look at what he says here. He says, and, and we won't break all this down right now, but he says, all this is from God, verse 18, who has reconciled us, right? That's gospel language, all right? But go back actually to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, right? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, here it is, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not no longer live to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I mean, this is just gospel, gospel, gospel. Crystal clear. So our mission statement says we exist to be a gospel-centered community. This is the message. This is right here. So gospel, crystal clear. Worshippers, what does it do? We're we're made worshippers. So this is also very clear. Number two, we are a new creation. Just observe how the scriptures talk about transformation. If I said to you, what do the scriptures say about how a person is transformed? What text are you going to give me? Where where do you go? Transformation, okay? Five five seconds. Think of a text. What text indicates or, or what text comes to mind about how we're transformed? Well, Here's a text, Colossians. In Colossians, Paul says that we are transformed by setting our mind on things above, right? Where Christ is seated. Or Paul says we're transformed by beholding, right? So, so we're not transformed by saying something like, hey, okay, I've put together a list here of things that I really want to work on and improve upon. Here's a list of things that I want to stop doing, and here's a list of things that I want to start doing. That may be a helpful exercise, but that's not fundamentally how we're transformed, not, at least not according to the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament is pretty clear that we are transformed by saying that I'm, I'm spending, and here's, here's how we're transformed. We start spending more and more and more time with Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we begin to, we come to the realization that Jesus is better than all those other things that I want to stop doing. See, you get so swept up in the love of Jesus as you spend time with him that you realize everything else begins to pale in comparison. Like this is not satisfying me anymore because what Jesus gives me, what I taste from him, what I realize from my relationship with Jesus is this. He is so much better than anything this world can offer me. So that's what happens over time. So you're transformed by spending time with Jesus. You know, often I've I've discipled a lot of young guys in college uh, or through college ministry. And I was a part of discipleship. I've been discipled so much and, and in my life by other men. And one of the things that, that is interesting is that guys will say, look, I keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. And somebody says, I just don't understand why I keep struggling with that same sin. But here, do you know why you think about yourself? Why do you struggle with that same sin? Think about it. Whatever comes to your life right now, why do you think you keep struggling with it? And the answer is, is really quite simple. You like it. I mean, at one level, you like that sin. And that's why you keep going back to it. You say, no, no, I, I, Pastor John, that I don't like it. I hate it. No, no, you like it. Your flesh likes it. The remaining flesh in you likes that. And so you keep going back to it. And so 
in our culture, we have this victim mentality and we cannot keep playing the victim card like it's something, you know, something has happened to me. I just can't get over this. No, what we have to do is start with this assumption. I'm a very wicked and unrighteous person in need of a righteousness that I will never possess outside of Jesus Christ. I am fundamentally broken and fundamentally flawed and I need Jesus. And because of that, what happens is we begin to desire Christ. And our prayer then becomes that our affection for Jesus will override our want for sin. And that's what happens. It, Thomas Chalmers talks about it this way. He says, he says, how do you root out an idol? He says, the way you root out an idol is by the expulsive, which means to expel something, power of a new affection, of a greater affection. How do you root out that sin of lust and pride or that sin of anger? How do you root that out? By the expulsive power of a higher and greater affection. That, that's how that happens. So, so what happens is we, we might behold Christ and gaze on his beauty until all these things below become dead to us and no longer call out for our affections. So what's really calling out for our affection is, is Jesus and, and, and that's not only going to happen, folks, by spending time with him. And isn't that true? Like there might be people that you know that, you know, you don't really feel like a, a close affinity with. You, you don't really feel like you're going to be good friends with them. But when you start spending time with him, you come to the conclusion, wow, you know, that's a really great guy. I mean, I, I really like spending time with him. And, and I didn't know he was so, uh, so kind and so helpful. And, and you begin spending time with somebody, you love them more. And with Christ, the more time we spend with him, the more our affection grows for him. And the more our affection grows for Jesus, the smaller and more dim the things of this world become. People of God, it's really simple. We just need to spend more time with Jesus Christ. It's it's that simple because we are transformed in his presence. And I love what we heard a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, we were at a seminar uh, with, with the pastors. I can't, I can't even really remember where we were, but, um, the guy said that the greatest gift you can give somebody else is your transformed presence. And when I first heard that, I thought that sounds really cliche, like a Christian cliche, but it's not. Think about that. Think about that statement. The greatest gift you can give somebody I mean, is your transformed presence. If Jesus has impacted and totally revolutionized your life and that is felt tangibly, palpably every day, when you get around other people, they feel that, they discern that. And so, and so you're giving them, when you say that, I think, I think embedded within that is the gospel. You're just, you're giving them words, not just your life, but words. You're communicating the gospel to them because you've been fundamentally changed by Jesus. So we desire Christ and our affections begin to change and that overrides our want for sin. I mean, this is just really John Owen 101. Anybody read John Owen, you'll know this is just John Owen 101, how we are changed and transformed from the inside out. I read this week uh, for the first time uh, ever um, his, his essay on communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's, it's really kind of a dense read, but the section on the Christ is, is really, really good. But Owen talks about this stuff over and over again. And this is, this is the beginning of change. And if we don't get this right, then here's what happens. Actually, it ends up having an effect on our mission. How does, how does getting the gospel right affect our mission? It has massive implications. 
Here's why. An accurate understanding of God's love for me in the gospel fuels mission. See, we are to press into Christ and be transformed by beholding the Son of God until old things pass away and all things become new. The question is, what are new? What's the new things here that Paul's talking about? Well, the new is, I value Jesus above all other things. The new is, I want to walk like Jesus walks. The new is, I want to follow his commands and his commands to you become joy. Because following them makes you more like him, and that's what you want to be, is more like him. And when I fail, Jesus is all the more beautiful to me, because despite my sin, I'm still counted righteous in him. Amazing. And when you begin to understand that, that, that transforms the way you think about the world, and you are compelled you are compelled to share that message with other people. If you don't get that mercy, though, and you don't understand that transformative effect, why would you be interested in really helping other people experience such transformation? See, there's a vital connection between what you have felt and experienced in terms of transformation and what you're willing to share and preach to other people. Because if this is having such a massive effect on your life, then you, I mean, you, just, you just can't help but to share that with other people. So this news, I mean, how great is this news of the imputation of righteousness in the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ? You cannot plumb the depths of the gospel. I mean, it blows the mind so that you begin to think about all the implications of this, that when I blow it, tomorrow when I blow it, I have an example of God's love for me. When I absolutely fail tomorrow and I complete and I just miserably unravel, when that happens, God says to me, son, I already knew that you were going to do that. And that's why I gave you my cross. And that's why I sent you my son so that you would know that in the end, you don't have any righteousness of your own, but it's all wrapped up in me. And he reminds you of Jesus. And it's when we understand the glory and the magnificence of Christ that we begin to make war on sin. I mean, what is your motivation for fighting sin? I mean, if if it's not, I feel guilty when I do that merely. I mean, it's not, my wife is really bummed out when I act that way. It's not, you know, it's what other people think. No. What, what, what drives you or should be motivating you is the fact that Jesus and his name are being defamed. I mean, it's not about you anymore. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. Therefore, if anyone, again, Paul says here, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And just because I want to shoot straight with you tonight, I mean, I just got to tell you that that does not happen overnight. Just remind you of this truth. I mean, I like to say to some people that sanctification, sanctification is like trying to climb Mount Everest, wearing a pair of shorts, a t-shirt and flip flops. It's going to take a really long time and you're probably going to lose an arm or a leg in the process. It's hard. I mean, there's no silver bullets here. You, there's not like the, I think, I think some of the Pentecostal tradition tries to put in a silver bullet of a spirit filled life. All you need is a spirit filled life. If you, if you just had a spirit filled life, if you were baptized in the Holy spirit, then maybe it'll come on or you just got to get in that right group or you got to read that right book or, Hey, if you, if you, if you channel your energies in this direction, then that'll fix it. That's silver bullet thinking. Sanctification is hard. It's, 
It's long. It's difficult. It's, as Eugene Peterson says, long obedience in the same direction. It's painful. It's messy. But every day we press forward and we, we progress. All right? So now watch what happens next in this text because something really awesome takes place with the text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he... Now notice the individual level here. He. Okay? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled. Give me the next word. Us. He, us. So there's a movement here from, from the individual level to the corporate level. I mean, if anyone individually be in Christ, if you are a new creation, if I am a new creation, If we have been called by Christ, look what happens next. He reconciles us to himself. So he moves to a corporate application and identity here. So the individual is almost immediately swept up into the church, into the body of Christ. This Lone Ranger Christian mentality that me and Jesus, I'll just have a good quiet time every day. I can watch TV on church. I can pursue God in my quiet times, but I don't really need to come and worship with God's people. I mean, that mentality is so thick in our culture, isn't it? Now, we've been trained differently. We think differently as a church. We come here. We gather together. We, we value the body of Christ. But so many people in our society don't do that. Friends, you have an obligation as a Christian to help other Christians who have that Lone Ranger mentality leave that. Because that's unbiblical Christianity. So the point is the gospel saves us. And when it does, we're immediately drawn into community. So we have gospel worship community. Here it is. We're a community of worshipers together. We come together. Now, just to be clear, obviously there's an individual component to our mission, right? I mean, you have a responsibility personally and individually to advance the gospel. And Psalm 139, I love Psalm 139. You know, this whole thing about being knit in my mother's womb and and he knows us. And this is intimate language in Psalm 139. It's not... I don't know how that text sort of became like a women's ministry text. You know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, it's a good application of the text. But we've kind of, we've kind of lost the whole meaning of that text. I mean, it's not just a text that we can hijack for women's ministries. Good, good text, but the text means so much more than that. I mean, you are fearfully and wonderfully made has application, not just to comparing yourselves to other people, but it has so much more to say about how you are uniquely gifted and engineered by God to strategically advance his gospel and his kingdom. I mean, we, you, no other person in the world has the same set of gifts and the same set of personality and the same personality that you have to uniquely advance the gospel. Nobody. You are strategic in God's kingdom, which is why we did that mini-series on gifts. Because you need to understand how you're strategically gifted. So there's, obviously there's an individual component to our mission. But the main point is this, is that we go from individuals to a community. We're swept up into a community with other Christians. We are a church. We are a family on mission together. And that's the last piece, is mission. Gospel, worship, community, mission. And look at verse 18. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to to himself. Here it is. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us 
What? The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. I mean, we are called to this ambassadorship. And this is such a privilege for us. And here's the big point. The gospel saves you from yourself to God for other people. The gospel saves you from yourself to God and for other people. Mission. We are on a mission that is far bigger than ourselves. I mean, that's what the gospel does. It gets you and me outside of ourselves. You begin to see others rather than yourself. You begin to think for someone other than yourself. You begin to pray for people other than yourself. You begin to want things for someone else other than yourself. And moreover, you begin to look at people differently. Look at verse 16. What does he say there in verse 16? From now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that when you're saved from yourself to God, something happens. In other words, what he's saying is that our vision has changed. We don't regard any, anybody anymore with just blanket categories of male and female, pretty and ugly, rich and poor, black and white anymore. He's saying that there's only one category now, and it's this, in Christ, in Christo, or outside of Christ. It's either in Jesus or outside of Jesus. That's, that's it. That's how we view the world. That's the glasses we put on. So this is the lens, the only lens that matters anymore. This fleshly sort of outlook is no longer. And we once regarded Christ that way. It's what he says in verse 16. I mean, isn't that what he says? Yeah, we used to regard him as a mere man. But now we regard him as the son of God. See, if you get Jesus wrong, if your understanding of him is wrong, your life is in shambles. And if other people in this world get Christ wrong, if they just view him as a mere man, if they don't view him as the son of God who comes to literally turn your life upside down, then their life will be in shambles. Everything revolves around Jesus. He is the center of life. So... Here's the principle for us. I mean, if we are in Christ, every one of our relationships is now ordered around the gospel. I want you to think about that. Take ownership of what I'm saying here. You, all of your relationships now are fundamentally ordered around the gospel. Listen, not sports, not cooking, not sewing, not hobbies. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you like, whatever it is that you're involved with, those things are meant to be relationships toward the gospel and for the gospel. Jesus is meant to be the center and the essence of those relationships. They're always a means to a greater end, plain and simple. You exist for other people. So the point, the point Paul is making here is that your relationships are not primarily about you anymore. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not about happiness. It's not fundamentally about fun. It's fundamentally about advancing strategically the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, you're free to be about other people because Jesus is radically for you. So you don't have to be for yourself anymore. 
You don't have to be selfish because everything you need or could ever want in this life is given to you by Jesus. So you're totally free to sell out and give your life for Jesus and for the advancement of the gospel. Awesome calling. Without that, we would continue to live in so much selfishness. But here's the point. To the degree that we understand that Jesus is everything for us, to that same degree, we become a missional people. Because we're not in it for ourselves anymore. We're in it for Jesus and he has given us everything. So these things are so connected. So if we're in this world for any other reason than to be on mission with Jesus, then we're here for a selfish reason. And the gospel saves us from that kind of selfishness. It frees us to see other people and not our hall of mirrors. I don't want to wake up and look at myself and think about myself all day. What can I do for me today? God, free me from that mentality. God, free us all from that and make us so radically oriented toward other people. If we're going to order our relationships around Jesus, we cannot have shallow, superficial relationships with others. The gospel is meant to be, listen, so riveting to us, so thrilling that it, to you that it gets you outside of yourself and your love for others. So family of God, hear me tonight. Let's get on mission with God. What a privilege this is. What a privilege. So the gospel frees us from self. It frees us to God and for other people. And this church has been freed from self to God and for other people. This church exists for God and for other people. This church exists to spread a passion for God in the world. That's what we exist to do. We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. This church exists to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. It's what we exist to do. That's our fundamental identity. We do not exist, hear me, we do not exist just to grow and mature ourselves. We exist to make disciples and multiply disciples. We don't exist just to mature Because part of maturation is making disciples and multiplying disciples. In fact, you're not mature unless you're making and multiplying disciples. So we exist for more than ourselves. The gospels freed us from that. And that's who we're called to be. And we're called to be that specifically and primarily for this city. And then beyond to Serbia and other places of this world. So with that said, then let me close this way. Um, Every one of you who confesses Jesus as Lord... Um, has signed up for something way bigger than you ever dreamed. And I, and I mean you who are corporate professionals or who work in the factory or drive a truck. You have signed up for something way more than you thought. If you're a homemaker, if you're a student, if you're a mom, to belong to Jesus is to embrace his missionary heart. Your heart was made for this. Your heart was made to embrace the global dimension of missional living. Listen to, listen to this, to the degree that we do not have a heart for this city, that we do not have a heart for the globe or for the world, that to that degree that we are not getting our arms around the lost and dying of this city, to that same degree we are sick in our souls. We're sick. You can take a church's temperature by looking at their pulse for mission. If the pulse for mission is weak, the church is sick. And that's just a fact because our souls were made to advance the mission of God. And if we're not doing it, we'll get sick. And many people do not know what's wrong with their souls, but friends, it's really quite simple for a lot of us. What's wrong with our souls is that we're not doing what we've been fundamentally called to do. You're called to make disciples. That's what your calling is. 
And if you're not doing that, you're going to be sick. And we're going to be sick as a church. So verse 14, I just want to end with this because this is our motivation. Verse 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. I love that. It compels us. I mean, I mean, that kind of love will begin to express itself in tangible deeds. I mean, flesh and blood, I mean, get out of our seat deeds. I mean, go to the hospital and serve other deeds. Call up and offer the babysitting deed. Get up and put the pan on the stove and cook the meal deed. See, and invite the neighbors over and spend time with them. Invite them over and over and over again. You feel like this is not going anywhere, but you keep inviting them over because the love of Christ is constraining you. It's compelling you. And that, that you believe in your heart. Oh God, I believe that if I keep being faithful and keep inviting that same neighbor over, that eventually he's going to come to know Jesus. Praise God. He's going to get saved. Help me to be faithful and press into that. That love compels us to get our arms around Owensboro for the glory of God. So church, be encouraged, be stirred this evening, okay? This is our calling as a church. This is our mission. We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission, on mission to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. There is no greater plan for your life. There's no greater calling that you could possibly be called to than this. And, and just like Joyce Goodwin had a massive influence in Pamela's life, just like that happened, who's gonna, who's, who are you going to have a massive influence on? I, I just believe that. Who, who, you're sitting there, you're saying, I, I, you've got two or three people in mind. Who is that? Who are those people that you can reach? May God help you. And we'll help you as pastors. And pray for us because we're to be busy making disciples too. So let's do this together as a family and let's advance God's mission. We have exciting days ahead of us. I'm so thrilled for what God will do through us. Let's pray. The main thing is let's intercede. Let's be on our knees. Let's be on our faces before God. And let's ask him to do marvelous things through us because we exist to do great things for Christ and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder from 2 Corinthians 5 that you have called us to this ambassadorship, that we are reconciling, that we're a part of this recon reconciliation work between God and man. Father, stir us as a church. Enliven us. The word vivification. Lord, bring life to us. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us. Give us power from your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.